A question to you all. Where is the safest place in your life? Where do you feel most yourself? Where are you most comfortable? I think we all might be thinking at home and that's where I'm most comfortable. It seems we spend most of our time there with our families. It's where we sleep at night, isn't it? Now kids, raise your hand if you're a kid. I got a question for you. Think about your own house. Where is the safest place in your house? My guess is you're thinking of somewhere that is maybe in the basement or somewhere that uh, has a lot of protection. I had to ask myself the same question initially and my answer was my home too. And uh, I thought about it some more and I, I had two different answers for two different reasons. First, our laundry room. Our laundry room is in our basement. It's in the corner. It's uh, got two concrete, uh, concrete walls in the corner there. You get the picture. Uh, but then I thought about my second answer. So yes, physically, that's the safest place in our home. But that's not where I feel the safest. Where I feel the safest is in my bed. It's comfortable. It's big. I sleep there. But most importantly, my wife, Miriam, is with me. Every time we go to sleep, I'm reminded that she's with me. And I'm reminded of our marriage bond, the covenant that we made together, that in this life, we promise to be together forever. And children of God, brothers and sisters, in a similar way, our covenant-keeping God wants us to be reminded today of the covenant which he made with us. God will never leave us nor forsake us, either in this life or in the next. In other words, God preserves his children in both body and soul. And that's the main point for today. God preserves his children in both body and soul. As we look at God's word today in Psalm 16, we're going to answer a few questions about God's preserving us. Why, how, and to what end? Why does God preserve his children? This will give us reasons. How does God preserve his children? This will show us the resources God uses or the means through which he preserves. And to what end does God preserve his children? This will show us the result of God's preservation. Before we jump into the text, let me ask God to guide us, and then I'll give some background that will help us to think clearly about what, is God, what God is saying through the psalmist. Let's pray. Our holy God and loving Father, grant to your servant this time the boldness to proclaim your law and your gospel to your people. Holy Spirit, convict us of our own sin and show us the mercy of our dear Father through the blood of Jesus the Son. In whose name we pray. Amen. It is clear to us that this psalm is written by David because there's that little note that the text tells us, a miktam of David. And the other helpful thing that happens is that it tells us that this is a miktam. And you're probably thinking, what on earth is a miktam? Although the actual word is somewhat unclear, well, we're not without knowledge of what it might, uh, what it might be. Uh, known to be because of other psalms that are also miktams. Uh, if we start to understand the manner in which uh, these are to be read, we can understand the author's intent. We have several other psalms. I'll just read a brief introduction. See if you can gather the sense or the tone of these psalms by their explanation. See if you can hear the pattern of this type of psalm. In Psalm 56, a miktam of David 
when the Philistines seized him in Gath. 57, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. 59, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. And finally, a miktam of David for instruction, when he strove with two men, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom. Were you able to get the sense of those introductions? Did you hear the pattern? After hearing about what other miktoms are describing, is a miktom a song of joy and praise? Or does it seem more likely that a miktom is a song of humility and desperation or dependence? That's right. This is a song of desperation. Brings us to our first reason. God preserves his children because we need him, need him to. God preserves his children because we need him to. David's opening line is one of utter helplessness. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. To take refuge in something means to find and go to safety somewhere, or in this case, someone. To ask God to preserve us is to ask him to hold us fast, to keep us safe, to protect us from harm. What an excellent prayer. This is David's plea and posture for the rest of the psalm. This verse, along with the ones following, help give us the reason why God preserves his children. In fact, we know that this is David's posture before the Lord often. He is well aware of his need of both saving from the physical perils, like we just heard, but also spiritual saving from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Are we desperately fleeing from our sin? Are we seeking and running to the Lord in true helplessness? God preserves his children because we need him to. Secondly, God preserves his children because we are nothing without him. In verse 2, David writes, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What a great statement. David's heart before the Lord is not boastful or proud, but humble and broken. His attitude here reflects what we've heard from our study in Matthew and the Beatitudes, doesn't it? In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus tells us, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Does David sound poor in spirit here? Not only does David express spiritual bankruptcy for his heart, but he's also expressing the immense goodness of God. God's goodness outweighs all other goods. God's provision is so abundant, everything else looks like crumbs and rags. If we go to John 15.5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God preserves his children because we are nothing without him. Our third reason, God preserves his people, his children, because we are trapped in our own sin without him. God preserves his children because we are trapped in our own sin without him. These next verses, 3 through 4, we have a contrast of thought. The contrast is with the saints and David's delight in them and the idolaters and their sorrows. David's delight is the covenant people of God, Israel, because that's where God was. And David's time to be with the saints, to be with the gathered, chosen people of God, was to be with God. He was in them, in their midst. His dwelling place was the temple. 
David's delight was the saints because his loyalty was to Yahweh only. He was not going to bow to those other pagan gods or idols. What happens to those who run after another god? Their sorrows multiply. The same is true of us. Before God rescued us, we were bowing down to other gods, weren't we? The God of pleasure, the God of self, the God of nice, the God of financial security, the God of sex, the God of, I could go on. David was loyal to God because God was loyal to him. God made a covenant with David, and David responded with a loyal, fervent love of God. Paul says to Titus in his, in his letter to him in the third chapter, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Dear child of God, because of God's loyal love and promise to his own son, we are no longer stuck in the land of idolatry. We are brought into God's family, God's land, with his other adopted children. God preserves his people because we are trapped in our own sin without him. As, as we've seen in verses 1 through 4, they provided the reason that God preserves his children. Verses 5 through 8 gives us perspective on the resources God uses in preserving his children. David here is writing about God's covenant love towards him, and yet the way that he writes can also be applied to God's people for all time, which then means it's for us now, dear people of God. Let's listen to what David writes about how God preserves us. God preserves his children through his providence. That's their first resource. God preserves his children through his providence. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Do you hear all the different ways that David is expressing his joy and gratitude in God's provisions? David is mentioning here that the Lord is providing for all of his needs. Similar to the Lord's Prayer, where Christ teaches us to ask for our daily bread, to ask God for our needs, both body and soul. And God answers the prayer, doesn't he? David is making this assertion that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. How great it is to see that David's prayer to God before the Messiah even came reflects how the Messiah would then teach his disciples how to pray. You hold my lot. The Lord is his lot, which means the Lord controls his circumstances. David is expressing his assurance that God is indeed in control. Does God also control our circumstances? Has God remained the same since the time of David? Absolutely. Heidelberg question 28 asks, what does it profit us to know that God has created 
and by his providence still upholds all things. Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what the future, <clears throat> and for what is the future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand, that without his will they cannot so much as move. This means that God cares for you. He's not letting a global pandemic go to waste, but he is using it for your sanctification and for his glory. He's not letting your chronic pain or disease go to waste, but he is, by his Holy Spirit, using it to cut off the things of your flesh and helping you to grow in things that are him. He's not letting your marital issues go to waste, but when we submit to God's plan for marriage and to the promise we made to our spouses, he works in us to show us his faithfulness to his own bride, his church. The almighty God of the universe is able to use all things, virus, sickness, job loss, marital issues, to the ultimate good and ultimate comfort of his dear children. Resource number two, God preserves his children by his fatherly hand. God preserves his children by his fatherly hand. In verse 6, David is expressing gratitude and contentment for what God has measured to him. David calls what God has given him pleasant and beautiful. But isn't this a song of desperation? Isn't David in desperate times and in humble circumstances? How can David be expressing gratitude and contentment? Here, David is providing with us a great example of what contentment looks like in difficult circumstances. David reminds us that God is still in control of our circumstances, even when they're not favorable. David reminds us that God is using hard times for our good and his glory. God is preserving David and his children through his fatherly generosity. God preserves his children by his fatherly hand. Our third resource, God provides his children through the presence of his Holy Spirit. In verse 7, it is the Lord who gives David counsel. How did David receive counsel from the Lord? We know that David desired to know God's law. His word, and specifically Psalm 119, prove it. David sought the Lord through knowing his word. And in that way, the Lord gave him counsel. Additionally, during the time of David, the Lord provided Israel with prophets. A prophet is a person who is called by God to speak for God. Now, kids, let's think back to the story of David, in particular his kingship. And when he sinned with Bathsheba, who did God call and appoint as a prophet to rebuke David? Does anybody know? Who did God call to rebuke David. Who's the prophet? It was Nathan. Nathan provided counsel to David from God. God's appointment of Nathan would have been a second way in which God provided counsel to, to David. When David writes, In the night also my heart instructs me, I think the sense of this is that whether David was actively seeking the Lord's counsel through his word or through God providing him the prophets, or even while he sleeps, he's instructed by the Lord either way. Verse 8, 
I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. What did David mean by setting the Lord before him? He set God always in front of him. This means to live each moment as if he were living before the throne of God. How terrifying and yet how comforting that would be. Do we have the same attitude to live every moment as if we're living before the face of God? Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Permit me to reverse the order. I shall not be shaken because he is at my right hand. The right side in the Hebrew mind was a place of position and honor. And to this day, we still use this type of thinking. We shake hands with our right hand, showing honor to the one that we're greeting. To be at one's right hand was to be easily accessible. It was, this, it was as if David could lean over and receive counsel from God, or to call upon him for strength, or to ask him to intercede. And that is why David shall not be shaken. The Lord is on his side. If David had this type of confidence in God, how much more do we, who have God the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, have confidence that God is on our side? As we approach the climax of the psalm, let's recap where we've been so far. In this psalm, David writes very clearly for us that God preserves his children. Verses 1 through 3 tell us the reasons for God's preservation. Because we need him to, because we're stuck, I'm sorry, because we're nothing without him, and because we're stuck in our own sin without him. Then, verses 5 through 8, we answered the question, how? How does God preserve his children, or the resources of God's preservation? God preserves his children through his providence, by his fatherly hand, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And now, verses 9 through 11 tell us to what end. To what end does God preserve his children? What is the result of God's preservation? Result number one, God preserves his children to eternal security for body and soul. God preserves his children to eternal security for body and soul. In verse 9, as David is concluding this psalm, he uses therefore. And perhaps you know this already, but the question we need to ask is, what is therefore, therefore? This whole psalm, up until this point, is about his plea for preservation and his adoration of God's goodness. What grace God has given us in his word. David's heart here is glad because of the Lord's preservation. And in case we have a hard time understanding emotions like I do, David writes, my whole being rejoices. And David doesn't stop there. It's not just a response of emotions only, but a foundational truth. My flesh also dwells secure. He knows that his body has an eternal security. David feels secure all the way to his bones. In verse 10, the word for indicates cause or reason. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Instead of the word for, we could read verse 9 and 10 together and use the word because, like this. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. God will not abandon our souls to the grave. Our souls do not die. Our bodies, 
They will eventually be put in the grave, should the Lord tarry. But our souls, they will live on. God did not let his holy one see corruption. As David is writing this, it is possible that David was referring to himself. But what is far more likely is that David was seeing God's promise to the Holy One, the Messiah, our King and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Because of where this is located within this psalm, this makes the whole psalm ultimately about the Messiah. God has been very gracious by giving us a New Testament use of this psalm. And this is a great grace because by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God empowered his apostles to utilize his own word in their preaching. And oftentimes, New Testament writers utilize a, an Old Testament passage and rightly apply it to their context. And oftentimes, it's messianic. Jesus did this frequently, as we've seen in our time in Matthew. Paul references the Old Testament frequently in his letters like Romans. And the book of Hebrews is a book where the author is essentially interpreting Old Testament passages the entire time. Because of an Old Testament passage being used in the New Testament, we are able to properly and clearly understand the application of such a text. Scripture interprets Scripture. Let me show you what I mean. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter preaches a sermon like never before and like never would be. In Acts 2.23, we read, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, speaking to the Jews, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said, concerning him, and he quotes verses 8 through 11, Brothers, this is now Peter again, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and is in his tomb with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath, that he would be set, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What glorious news, folks. God preserves his children because he preserved his own son. When we are united to Christ, we share in God's preservation. Because of Christ, we have eternal security. This is the gospel for you. Weary saint, take rest in it. <laughs> this is the gospel, dear sinner. Repent of your sin and turn to God. He will preserve you only for his own son's sake. Folks, this is the climax of the psalm, and yet David didn't stop here. What we've heard thus far has been the uh, reasons and the resources of God's preservation, but now we come, we're coming up on the result. Result number two. God preserves his children to eternal joy for body and soul. God preserves his children to eternal joy for body and soul. The first part of verse 11, God reveals to us the path of life. Now, how does God reveal to us the path of life? How do we know what the path of life is? When does it begin? 
Jesus has purchased this type of life for us, and when we place our hope and trust in him only, then this life begins. For Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's think back to the Old Testament times for just a moment. Wherever the Lord was, there was security and blessing. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden when God would come to visit them in the cool of the day. Or Israel during the time of the tabernacle or temple when God was physically with them in the, in the presence of the Holy of Holies. To be out of the presence of the Lord was to be cursed and cut off and humiliated. As the saints of the Old Testament were blessed by God's presence, how much more are we, his New Testament saints, blessed by his presence through the gift of the Holy Spirit? We don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. God is spiritually with us through his spirit in this life. But when he resurrects us, he will be with us physically forever. Brothers and sisters, as the gratitude section of the Heidelberg tells us, we are reminded of the deliverance from our sin and misery, and rightly so. The other part of the gratitude is the deliverance to our heavenly dwelling. Let us now be reminded not only of those things from which we've been saved, but also to those things, to those things to which we have been saved. Let's look to heaven and beyond. Let us look now to eternal life. What does this eternal life look like with God, the new heaven and new earth? Revelation tells us, and here the Apostle John says things like, The temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon or to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light. By its light will the nations walk. Its gates will never be shut. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Later, John writes this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and, the, and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. Dear people of God, let this psalm be our reminder that God, because of his abundant goodness, love, mercy, and grace, preserves his children and both body and soul. Because God preserved his own son, he will preserve you too. For those that are in Christ, you will make it to the end. You have eternal security for both body and soul. Out of gratitude for what God has done, let us now show our loyalty to him and to one another, his children.